0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and today we have a guest I've been trying to bring on the show since before the show even launched. Her name is Miranda Ballantyne, and she's the CEO of REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. The reason I've been so keen to get Miranda on the podcast is because she leads a group of companies that's reshaping the large-scale energy procurement process. REBA's members are household names. We're talking Amazon, Walmart. Google, General Motors, Disney, McDonald's, Nike, Target, Starbucks, the list goes on and on. REBA also includes energy and service providers like Duke Energy, EDF Renewables, NG, Primergy, and banks like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America Merrill Lynch. So yeah, I'm excited Miranda's here to talk about the trends she's seeing and to share the insights from some seriously important stakeholders in the renewables industry. So let's get to it. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to the sponsor of today's episode, Infor. Infor is a global leader in industry-specific cloud applications to support critical business needs. Infor solutions are tailored to meet the needs of wind and solar generation asset owners. More than 350 utilities organizations rely on Infor's cloud-based ERP solution to ensure their assets and infrastructure are safe and reliable. Joining me today is Miranda Ballantyne. She's the CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. Miranda, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well. Nice to see you, Sean.
0: Good to see you too. So let's start today's conversation by just kind of giving our listeners a little bit of background on what REBA is, where it started, and what your group does in the marketplace for renewable energy.
1: Yeah, great. So REBA is the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. We are a trade association that was built by large clean energy customers for large clean energy customers. We have a a simple but very powerful vision. We are driving a resilient zero carbon energy system where every organization has a viable cost effective pathway to procuring renewable energy. So that's what we do. We have a goal of developing 60 gigawatts of new renewable energy by 2025 and bringing tens of thousands of energy customers into the market.
0: Tell me a little bit more about your members. Who are we talking about?
1: Well, we have members from across the clean energy uh, value chain. So th- the majority of our members are large clean energy customers, primarily commercial and industrial customers. But we do have members from the energy developer community, so energy providers. And we also have members from what we call the service provider community. So you can imagine it's all the businesses that Help clean energy transactions happen. So that's lawyers and financiers and buyers agents and consultants and that whole community as well. Um, we have over 250 members today. Total revenue across our membership is over six trillion dollars annually, and they're um, they have about almost 14 million employees around the world. So it's a really powerful movement, again, largely driven by large clean energy customers. That's the majority of our membership. But it really is a community that brings everyone together to solve the toughest barriers to clean energy deployment.
0: And what are the origins of REBA? I mean, was this just born of a bunch of companies trying to do the same thing on their own and then decide to get together? Or, Or how long ago did things start
1: well, yeah. In a, in a sense, that's exactly right. So it all started actually back in 2013. At the time, I was with Walmart. I was a, a global director on their the Walmart sustainability team. I was responsible for developing the strategy for Walmart to achieve its ambition of 100% renewable energy around the world. And in 2013, there actually weren't that many Corporations that had either committed to procuring renewable energy or had actually done renewable energy deals. Uh, About a dozen of us came together in 2013 at a really great meeting held by the World Wildlife Fund here in Washington, D.C., to talk about what were the barriers we were facing as energy customers What were the barriers we were facing to using our demand-side power to drive the zero-carbon energy system that we were committed to seeing? And one of those barriers we uncovered in that first meeting back in 2013 was we didn't have a community of our own. We didn't have an ongoing home and place where we could come together as energy customers to collaborate, to identify barriers, and to help tackle those barriers that were really bigger than any one company, even a company as big as Walmart or Google or General Motors or Johnson & Johnson or Coca-Cola, who were some of the companies at that original meeting, could handle on our own. So, you know, in short, what you just described is exactly how it happened. It did take us a few years, sort of 2013 to 17-ish, to kind of build critical mass and take it from that roughly a dozen companies to the 250 companies that are in the community today.
0: I appreciate that background, and uh, that really helps. So let's move forward to today. Reba recently released a state-of-the-market report. you want to walk me through some of the, the key takeaways from that?
1: Yeah, well, as, as somebody that's been in this space for a long time, this year's state of the market report was really exciting. So keep in mind that the, the first large scale corporate renewable energy deal was back in 2008 when Walmart did a, a wind project. When we started counting as REBA in 2014, we only had a, a small, less than one handful of companies doing deals. In 2020, despite the pandemic, Despite the recession, despite the rolling climate calamities across the, the country, despite the racial reckonings, um, which you know it was just a pretty remarkable year. Despite all of that, clean energy procurement didn't slow down last year, and in fact, it was our biggest year ever. Thirty five companies announced over a hundred large utility scale renewable energy deals, topping ten point six gigawatts of new capacity, and. That has brought us to over halfway to our 60 gigawatt goal. We're up above 35 gigawatts now as a community. So, you know, 10.6 was our biggest year ever. And I'll tell you that the first quarter of 2021 is not slowing down. In first quarter of 2021, we've already seen 3.2 gigawatts of announcements, 18 buyers. I know that we have a we have a pretty wonky listenership to, to our podcast today, Sean. So most of for most of you, 3.2 gigawatts, the scale of that won't won't be lost. But just if we have folks that need a little bit of perspective, you know, the 3.2 gigawatts for Q1 of 2021, that is larger than the entire 12-month period of new deals announced in 2014, in 2015, 2016, and 2017. So to have one quarter that surpassed the entire year of 2017, it's it's really remarkable. We are on pace to just have a, a huge 2021.
0: Okay, now when we're talking about you know the deals being done, what's the what's the range of size on those deals? I mean, obviously there's some smaller projects, bigger projects. You have you have some members that are big players in the space. So what's that range look like?
1: Yeah, so we track at Reba, we specifically are focused on utility scale deals. So, you know, these are deals in the, I'd say probably 50 megawatts and larger. So we're not even tracking all those on site deals, all those rooftop solar deals. There are a few on site projects across the country that are not solar. So you've got, of course, some geothermal on site. You've got believe it or not, some wind, both large-scale and, and small-scale wind on site at some large companies, commercial or, or industrial companies that have significant land or space. You are seeing some you know, fairly large wind projects actually happening on site. And so our projects that we track, that 3.2 gigawatts for Q1 of this year and the 10.6 gigawatts for all of 2020, those are really larger projects that are built off-site And SIA, the Solar Energy Industry Association, actually does a great tracking of on-site solar projects as well. So, and those are also accelerating. So there's just a lot, a lot happening across the space.
0: Are you seeing any new buyers or any industries that are kind of coming to the table now and, and, you know, doing more deals?
1: Yeah, again, as someone that's been in this for a long time, I, I really kind of get geeky about who's doing deals and what 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 are the sectors, what are the industries. You know, early in the earlier 2000s, it was really the retail companies and the CPG companies that, you know, the Coca-Colas and Unilevers and Coles uh, and Walgreens and Costco and Walmart that really kind of were the early leaders in this space. And then the tech companies came in in a big way and took us all to a new level in the sort of I'd say 2013 to 2016 sort of time frame. And then we started seeing some some deeper industrial companies coming in, some of the oil oil majors coming in. And what was really exciting about 2020 in my view was the industrial and manufacturing sector really just burst onto the scene. So we had significant new procurement being done by steel companies, cement companies, so we, we really saw an uptake there, which is really important, Sean, as you know, because while commercial energy-related greenhouse gas emissions have been falling in recent years, the industrial energy-related greenhouse gas emissions have actually been increasing. So seeing the industrial companies and manufacturers really looking to you know, electrify their processes, decarbonize the energy that they're using, recognizing that some of those those heating needs are a little bit tougher, and we're going to need a little bit more time to, to crack that nut of those technologies that can really get us to the, to the levels of heat that we need for some of those industrial processes. Then the other industry that really came under the scene uh, big time in 2020 is the real estate community. So, of course, the real estate community and REITs and large, you know, large real estate owners certainly have been in the energy efficiency space for a long time. But we're really seeing them now say, okay, we've done a lot and we still have more to do, but we've done a lot on energy efficiency. Now, how can we decarbonize the power that we're buying? And importantly, how can we work with our tenants to really begin to sort of disentangle Whose emissions is it? Who's scope one? Who's scope two? Who's scope three? How can we work together? And for those those of your listeners, which I'm sure are many who are landlords, know that these are complicated challenges. So that was a really exciting development in 2020 as well.
0: So there's also been a lot of news about how energy storage is expanding, you know, the role it plays in the market. You know, what are you seeing there?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. Another one of my passions. I, uh, I I actually spent just a little bit of time as a CEO of an energy storage as a service company up in up in Toronto. So you know, storage and the role of storage, not just batteries, but all types of storage, in helping to smooth that both hourly and daily intermittency of the intermittent renewables like wind and solar, but also importantly, the seasonal intermittency. It's going to be such an important piece, as we all know, to truly getting to a a carbon-free energy system. I know you're going to ask me, what were the big key trends? So I'm going to actually do a little bit of a spoiler here. One of the biggest trends that we've seen in the last few years, Sean, in the energy customer community is a real doubling down on the focus on the carbon impact of their energy procurement. So many of the the real leading large clean energy buyers are now looking at renewable energy as one means to the end where the end is a decarbonized power system. And that that may sound like a subtle shift but it is an important subtle shift that you know 10 15 years ago Uh, Many of us were just focused on deploying additional new renewable energy. And now we're really looking at how do we make sure that the new renewable energy that we're deploying actually has the highest decarbonization impact. So the I'm going to link now back to your question about storage, because these two things are tightly related. Energy customers aren't interested in deploying storage just for the fun of a of a new geeky technology. They're interested in deploying storage on their renewable energy projects because they can increase the decarbonization impact of their projects that way. They can increase the... Um, the quality of the power, they can increase the ability to deploy that zero marginal cost renewable power. So 2020 was the first year that we saw multiple large energy customers adding battery storage to their projects for improving the economics and improving the decarbonization impact. We had five deals last year that included storage, and we've already had a couple of deals in the first quarter of this year.
0: Yeah, well let's just get right into the other procurement trends. So you mentioned how some of the more buyers are asking about battery and, and how they can, you know, lead them down the path to decarbonization. Are there any other questions you're getting from either new buyers or even people who've been around the marketplace for a long time that are just kind of, you know, wondering what other options are out there?
1: Yeah, well, REPA really is a community of both leaders and learners. So we don't really have laggards in our community because you wouldn't, you wouldn't opt into a, a clean energy trade association if you weren't interested in deploying clean energy. So the questions that we get from those two halves of our community, the leaders and the learners, are, are quite different. We still do have a significant group of buyers who are brand new to the market. And if you think about it, most companies just pay their utility bill. They've never really thought about how do I competitively procure power? They've never really thought about how do I actually specify the generation type or the pollution reduction that I want from my power. So we continue from our our learner community to have a lot of those basic questions. How do energy markets work? There's a lot of acronyms floating around. What the heck do all these things mean? What's an RTO? What's an ISO? What's a PPA? What's the difference between a PPA and a VPPA? What's a green tariff? Why would I want to take a tax equity investment? Should I just buy this technology directly the way that I do my HVAC system? So we get from our learner community many of the same questions that we've, you know, we've been working to bridge for the last couple of decades. In our leader community, some of the trends that we're seeing. So for I've already mentioned one of the big key trends that we saw starting around 2018, 2019 and has really taken off is this deep focus on decarbonization impact from the projects that they're procuring. Being more technology neutral and more focused on how can my procurement truly decarbonize the grid, not just give me renewable power to my facilities. So that's probably one of the biggest, most important trends that we're seeing in our leader community. The second trend, and it may seem antithetical to the first trend, but it's actually not. The second trend is that we're seeing more and more of our our leaders saying, We want to make sure that our clean energy procurement fits in with our broader environmental social governance, ESG initiatives, that fits in with our broader commitments to the sustainable development goals, our SDG goals, fits in with our broader social or sustainability or CSR goals. So we're seeing another trend In addition to doubling down on the decarbonization impact, trend number one, trend number two is saying let's take a broader look at how we can ensure our clean energy projects are good for people, are good for labor issues, are good for equity issues, are good for other environmental issues, our conservation issues, or our our biodiversity um, priorities. So that's probably trend number two. And then trend number three that we're really seeing in our leader community is a much deeper engagement and focus on policy and advocacy. So if you looked 10 or 15 years ago, there were only one or two companies who had government affairs teams that were thinking about, well, versed in energy policy. Remember, most energy buyers are not energy companies so their government affairs and policy and advocacy teams they're well versed in their core business issues not necessarily energy issues so this is a really significant major trend and just as you know as one piece of evidence on that um in January of this year, and and Sean, remember what was happening January of this year, right? We were facing an insurrection in Washington. We were um, having a a really challenging transition of power in Washington. We were still in the, the depths of a global pandemic. We didn't yet have vaccines rolled out. I mean, it was a really, really challenging time. We were questioning First Amendment rights issues. And, you know, there was a lot going on in this country. Despite all of that we had almost 3 dozen large energy customers really iconic brands think Johnson and Johnson think Disney think Walmart and Target you know iconic American brands be brand forward and calling on the federal government to really deeply build a set of clean energy policies, not just climate change policies, but clean energy policies very specifically. To have 36 companies be brand forward on on that kind of um, request from our new federal government really, really demonstrates a significant shift. And that's really, I would say, our third key trend.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to get Miranda's reaction to all the big renewable energy proposals coming from the Biden administration. And I'm also going to ask her what it's like to lead a group that consists of so many influential companies across various sectors. Infor is a global leader in industry-specific cloud applications to support critical business needs. The Infor vision is led by crafting unique user experiences to support the business, starting from project development and planning through to digital tools for O&M. With solutions tailored for PowerGen and T&D enterprises, Infor is able to deliver speedy and reliable results, such as a 400% improvement on O&M productivity, 20% extension in equipment life expectancy, and millions of dollars of savings through controlling life cycle costs of assets. Infor, designed for progress. And now, back to my conversation with Miranda Ballantyne, the CEO of the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. Okay, so we're a few months into the Biden administration and, you know, circling back to, you know, the brand forward kind of, you know, messaging and ask that, you know, 36 companies in Reba kind of put forward in January. What is your what is your reaction been to what the Biden administration has proposed so far when it comes to, you know, clean energy proposals?
1: Well, you know, I've obviously been really excited to have an administration that is focused on decarbonizing the power grid uh, to have a president come in this early in his administration calling for 100% carbon pollution-free power by 2035, that's an incredibly bold ambition. Um, so that sets the stage for us to begin to have some, some deeper conversations around what is it going to take to get us there? What are the types of policies and regulatory frameworks that we're going to need to get there? So I've, I've obviously been very, very pleased about that. The administration and FERC, you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, as well as um, the leadership at DOE and across other parts of the government as well, have been really, really interested and hungry to hear from the corporate community, particularly to hear from corporate energy buyers. If you think about it, um, Sean, I'm, I'm sure you and most of your your listeners know that the federal government in addition to being the policy maker and the regulatory maker for the energy community, is also the largest energy consumer in the entire country. So they are really interested in not only developing the right policy and regulatory framework to support clean energy markets, thriving, uh, but also using their procurement power. So we've also been deep in conversation with the different agencies about how we can really um, lock arms and, and use our procurement community, whether you're a federal government agency or a city or a university or corporate and industrial energy consumer, how can we really use this broader community to create a market space where our economy is thriving, jobs are thriving, and we're really growing not only clean energy for this country, but but growing an entire industry so that we can really lead the world again in energy. So I'm excited about all of those things. There's a bunch of additional components of their plans that, that I'm also excited about.
0: Yeah, there's loads of components. I know, obviously, you know, there's wind and there's EV and stuff, but are there any pieces you think might be missing or, or just perhaps not announced yet that you'd like to see, you know, still rolled out?
1: So there's a couple of things. Um, one of the most important elements in our view to unlocking clean energy markets to decarbonize the power system is ensuring that we have wholesale organized markets in every region of the country we know that uh, over 80% of the commercial and industrial renewable energy projects today have happened in organized markets. And that's not because 80% of the facilities are in organized markets. Only about uh, 60, 65% of C&I facilities are in organized markets. Yet, About 82, 85% of the deals are happening in organized markets. So having wholesale markets is really, really fundamental to unlocking the marketplace. And competition is good for clean energy is the bottom line. And in fact, if your listeners haven't seen, and even with your your wonky audience, they may not have seen nine former FERC commissioners from both parties who have served under five presidents of both parties, uh, wrote a letter to FERC calling on FERC to really finish the business of expanding organized markets across the country. There is just widespread consensus amongst that community and amongst the energy customer community that wholesale markets are really a fundamental underpinning. Um, Now, I wouldn't say that's necessarily missing in the administration's plan. It just hasn't been as much of a focus as, as we would love for it to be. There is one other thing that's a little bit in the weeds, but is really important as well. And that is greenhouse gas data. We all know that the best way to change something is to first measure it and have clear visibility into what your impact is. And unfortunately, the greenhouse gas data and emissions factors that are provided Two large energy customers are woefully out of date. And we really need time and location matched greenhouse gas data for every load center. That way, large energy customers really understand which of my facilities where have the greatest impact and how can I actually decarbonize the power that I'm using uh, at every location all the time. So that's a little bit of a wonky in the weeds one. But it's, it's another space where the federal government and the Energy Information Agency really has an opportunity to play a big role.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. I, I did a little riff on that on a previous episode about the data and, and how we need that, it, need to be reporting it and things like that. I mean, I yeah. I kind of laugh because it's like I come from financial markets. So that's my background. And right. you know, every day we hear what the Dow did. But how many people really, how many people's lives are affected by the Dow going up 50, 50 points or down 50 points? Right, but right, every news, right. but every newscast and every newspaper has it. You know, why don't we have some kind of data point like that on on greenhouse gas emissions? It seems like, you know, if, if we're keeping track of our progress, either you know daily, monthly, even quarterly, it might help. Like you said, keep people's eyes on that. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's not in the weeds. I think it's an important piece. So now, kind of getting back to you know the policy side of things, are there any state or local initiatives that that is tracking or you're tracking that you might view as bellwethers for what might take off nationwide?
1: Yeah, there is. And actually, before I jump into that, I do want to name one other thing that I'm actually really excited about with the administration, and that is focus on resilience. And uh, certainly after after the um, ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, that has really opened the eyes, I think, of the broader community. And um, I, I spent a few years as the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force working on energy security and, and energy vulnerabilities and what we called mission assurance now of course for the air force mission assurance has a very particular meaning but whether you are a retailer or a tech company or a manufacturer or your you know a healthcare company you can translate mission assurance into what that means for you and you know that that cyber attack could could just as easily have been on a major artery of our power system and we as as a nation need to be doubling down on that focus on resilience, and that includes ensuring regional redundancies. That includes ensuring hardening of the system against cyber and physical attacks. It includes uh, deep study of our system and understanding uh, where our vulnerabilities are. And I think, of course what we saw with the rolling brownouts in California last summer and, uh, what we saw in Texas with the widespread blackouts because of the, uh, the polar freeze. Those are also, we've seen in the last 18 months, the very real effects of mother nature's attacks on our system and how that is changing because of climate change, as well as the cyber, the cyber threats of determined actors, um, Disrupting our systems, so that's an area where I think this administration is focused and has an opportunity to to really go even further.
0: Well, but let me let me just jump in there. So, where do you yeah. think the trend will go there in terms of resiliency? Will, will companies call for you know more resilient grids and, and interconnected lines, or will they kind of start leaning towards more distributed energy and islanding and things like that?
1: Oh, I think it's going to be all of the above. For many companies, I would say for, for the vast majority of companies, they really need these solutions to be economy-wide and nationwide and they are dependent on on their their regulators and their power companies to provide those solutions. And I think many companies are now recognizing that two very significant things have changed in the last couple of decades. First and foremost, our dependence on electricity has dramatically increased. There was once a time where our, our heating and cooling systems were quite separate from our power systems, our water systems were quite separate from our power systems. That's just no longer the case. We are dependent on electricity in in ways we never were before. Well, I should say there are three big things that have changed. Uh, the second big thing that has changed is that our system has continued aging. So we do have an aging power system. If, if we were on a, a webinar instead of a a podcast today, your viewers would see that behind me, I keep a um, a hollowed out power pole from an air force base. Uh, that is a visual demonstration of how fragile and aged our power system is across this country, and so that's sort of. Thing number two that's changed. And then thing number three that's changed is that the threat environment has changed. Climate change means that looking back at 100-year weather models is no longer the right way to predict the kind of weather impacts we're going to have against our power system going forward. And the advent of cyber warfare and and cyber espionage and cyber attacks has changed dramatically. So when you put those three things together, an increased reliance on electricity, an aging power system that was built for a different time, and a change in the threats against the power system, we have this sort of perfect storm that we as a full community, this can't be done company by company. We have to solve that as a full community. At the same time, I do think that more and more companies are saying, all right, but I'm not going to leave it up to Big Brother to solve it for me. I'm going to make sure that I have a resilient and low-carbon backup system. We see companies like Microsoft actually setting goals to fully decarbonize their backup power. Um, Google did a project this year that replaced their, di- or sorry, in 2020, that replaced their diesel gensets with carbon-free backup power. So we are seeing more and more companies say, how can I bring together my resilience goals and my carbon-free goals?
0: Okay. I'm glad you brought up the resiliency piece. It's important to talk about that. And but I want to get back to just the, the policy side of it. What are some of the the state or local initiatives you're tracking?
1: We operate more at the regional level, so we're not deeply engaged at the state level. However, we do stay closely closely monitoring state-level issues. So first and foremost, uh, obviously, we're tracking 100% clean energy standards at the state level. Uh, This has been a great transition from the RPS world to the CES world, where we are, again, from a policy perspective, starting to see more and more states focused on clean energy standards that are technology neutral and focused on decarbonization. Um, So, you know, we're watching, for example, the CES uh, rules in Arizona, um, which is the first standard that could be passed through a regulatory approach. So that could set a new trend for how PUCs may start to to get involved. Uh, We're very focused, of course, on the West and the Southeast. Um, So we're watching uh, both Oregon legislation that was passed to study the benefits and costs of developing or expanding an RTO in the state. Uh, We're watching DOE-funded state-led market options studies in the West, um, which are really being facilitated through the energy offices of Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Montana, and so we're, you know, we're looking at that sort of state level uh, 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 work, but in the region, we're really watching in the West um, wholesale market expansion uh, work at the state and regional level. So the Nevada SB 448, um, which really is looking at requiring transmission providers to join an RTO, and that's passed both the Assembly and the Senate. Uh, so we're seeing some interesting movement. And then, of course, the Southeast is another region of great import to our, our uh, C&I customers. They're, it's a very industry-heavy region of our country um, and you know has been pretty solid for on-site renewables, but has been very challenging for corporations to do utility-scale off-site renewables or utility-scale off-site um, um, zero-carbon power. Uh, In the ways that they have an organized market. So, um, you know, we're following closely the the Southeast Energy Exchange market discussions, um, and we're we're engaged with filings at FERC on that. Um, We are following closely the Southeast Organized Wholesale Market Study legislation in both North and South Carolina's, um, and really looking to support beginning to do some real studies to, uh, to take a look at the customer and climate benefits of wholesale markets um, across the Southeast. Um, so th- those are some of the areas that we're looking at. And then there are a couple of key things that we've been engaged in this year, Sean, at the state level, even though we don't do a lot of state level work, but there have been a couple of really important um issues at the state level that we have uh, jumped into in in existing wholesale markets. So down in Texas, um, after the polar freeze, there was some uh, really, really uh, anti-renewable legislation um, that had been proposed um, and so, you know, we've been deeply engaged and our customers have been deeply engaged in imposing that. Um, and, and in Ohio, uh, SB 52 would really increase barriers to solar and wind projects. So um, we've, we have been engaged in a, in a couple of state level issues as well.
0: I mean, you mentioned Texas, so I'm just going to come out and ask you like, Does all that anti renewables rhetoric um, give any of your members pause about developing projects out there? No. They're just, they're just, they just kind of treat it like, you know, just political rhetoric, huh? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look, I think, I, I, I think, um. What you saw happen in the days after the polar freeze is it was in some ways just so predictable. So, you know, the, the anti-renewables folks pointed to um, pointed to wind turbines freezing. Did that happen? Sure, it happened. But we have wind power in Antarctica. We have wind power in North Dakota. Um, the anti-gas folks pointed to the gas pipel- pipelines and gas wellheads freezing. Did that contribute? Sure, it did. Um, but we have gas all over the world in 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 polar zones. Um, uh, did did the uh, you know anti markets folks point to um, the lack of uh, not not robust enough capacity market? Was that did that play into it? Sure, it did. Did the lack of um, regional interconnection to depend on our friends and neighbors uh, play into it? Sure, it did. Uh, so. To me, what, all of that rhetoric was just highly predictable. It's much more worrisome when that rhetoric turns into legislation against one, one piece of that, when we know it was a complex amalgamation of a bunch of different challenges. And that's exactly what you see in resilience breakdowns. This is a system of systems. You have to take a system approach. And a lot of what happened was just good old-fashioned weatherization that needed to happen. Uh, you know, this was the third time that the system has froze since the 90s, and we need to be planning differently. So I, I actually have written a couple of blog pieces about this. It's, uh, I think uh, states and regions can really take, take some lessons from the military in this way. Uh, so anyway.
0: Okay. That's one of the... Pick your brain on that because yeah, there was definitely a lot of uh, verbal warfare going on. We'll just say that. Um, so the I verbal, pick little- the
1: w- verbal warfare is one thing, but when it turns into legislation, that's where it really starts to get dangerous. You know, let's not take let's not take one piece of the failure and legislate it out. It, I mean, that was it has just been a real blatant uh, anti renewables play there, and so we're we're trying to combat that.
0: All right, now let's pivot just for a second to, to supply chain, right? And I want to take this in two parts because first, there's been some human rights concerns in the news about the supply chain, anything coming out of China, specifically solar panels, but also um, on U.S. soil here. You know, President Biden and Secretary Granholm have been talking about bringing a lot of that manufacturing, you know, back to back to U.S. soil. So, you know, in two parts: a, what is what is what are REBA members doing, and how are they addressing concerns about the human rights things of the existing supply chain, and do you think that you know the U.S. could build out that kind of supply chain right here within our own borders? And and how long do you think that would take?
1: Yeah, two great questions. So let me take the first one first. Um, so as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, one of the big key trends that we're seeing is energy customers looking to incorporate all of their environmental, social, and governance priorities into their clean energy procurement. And I would say Salesforce has really led this. They they released a paper early last year, I think it was January or February of 2020, um, called More Than a Megawatt, where they really laid out all of the questions that they're asking their renewable energy suppliers when they are going into an RFP process. And that That paper has sparked enormous conversation. Many companies were also asking those kinds of questions already in their RFP processes, uh, but Salesforce making that very public and putting it out there in that way um, really opened the conversation. So you see now, especially in the leader community, and this is being passed very quickly to our learner community. Uh, but what you see now is RFPs that do a lot more than just ask for, is this an additional wind or solar project? Can I get recs for it? And what's going to be the price? Can I can I uh, save in the long term over the course of the the PPA, can I save money on my power bills or or manage the volatility that I'm seeing in my, in my regular electricity bills? Now you're seeing questions like, tell me about the supply chain of the solar panel. Who are you buying from? How are you ensuring that there's not uh, forced labor or slave labor? And these are questions that most of these companies have been asking their other supply chains for years, and so it makes it makes a lot of sense that as this market matures and as our energy customers mature, they're bringing that same set of um, supply chain standards, both for human rights but also for environmental issues, into their questions. Um, and and I would say that the the human rights impacts of clean energy supply is going to be such an important issue going forward. Many clean energy projects do require a, a, a significant amount of mining for, for irons and ores and minerals. Um, and those are areas where if we're not thoughtful and, and careful about the standards, um, they, they are fraught for human rights issues and violations. So it's a, it's a space where our community is really getting very active.
0: Okay, and then now on on building out domestic supply chain, what are the biggest hurdles of that, and how how far out do you think that is to be becoming a reality?
1: Oh gosh, well now you're really pushing the edge of my expertise, so I might leave that one for for some of our other members who are who are a little bit well versed. We've got we've got a couple of uh, leadership circle members. Um, first solar and HSE semiconductors who are, uh, you know, very, very deep in those kinds of issues, who could probably speak to them better than I could. Um, you know, what I will say, having having come from, uh, you know, two global companies that have supply chains that are truly global, is uh, that whether we like it or not, most supply chains are global now. Our world is highly interconnected, um, and we're going to need to build resilience in our supply chains by by ensuring that we have distributed supply chains. We have global manufacturing uh, that we're not too centralized in any one location, um, so that so that we can be agile if we find violations or or practices in certain parts of the world that don't align with our, our corporate or national values.
0: Okay. And then circling back to the Salesforce paper, more than a megawatt, I'll make sure we make that available in the show notes uh, so that listeners yeah. can kind of check that out. I, 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 I was looking through it. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's great. So next question on procurement trends and preferences. So there's all kinds of different, you know, deal structures from, you know, VPPAs to direct PPAs. Are there any, you know, what are you seeing the most of or any preferences among your members?
1: Yeah. So, so this is a great question. So power purchase agreements are, are now sort of the standard go-to, whether it's a power purchase agreement for a rooftop solar project or a virtual power purchase agreement, which essentially is a, uh, uh, you know, contract for differences, it's more of a financial arrangement than an actual electron arrangement. Uh, those have become sort of the go-to approach for procuring renewables, right? And it's it's funny, Sean, because if you think about it, uh, the first PPA the, the first PPAs were done in maybe 2006-ish for solar and 2008-ish for wind, so it's not like these—you um, know—this approach to buying renewable energy has been around forever. That said, um, I will say that that we are seeing uh, some real shifts away from the, the PPA. Um, so for some companies, particularly VPPAs, which are really financial. Um, contracts as opposed to electron contracts, there are some risks to them. We've got a whole paper for our members around the risks of VPPAs. um, And they don't meet all of the needs of some of our members. Some of our members want projects where they are actually procuring and consuming the electrons from projects. Some of our members just don't want to bear the risk of that contract for difference and the potential ups and downs of that. So we are seeing more and more Different kinds of structures. We're seeing more and more companies um, getting involved directly in tax equity investments. We're seeing more and more companies, particularly with rooftop solar, just directly pro- procuring the equipment the way that they would their HVAC systems. Um, we see more and more companies working with their banks, working with their um, working with their their banks' commodity trading desks to have their banks help them by by power. We are seeing more and more companies working directly with their utilities and utilities are getting more and more excited about working directly with their customers on clean energy deals, whether it's through a green tariff offering or a green power offering, or bespoke um, bilateral deals between between utilities. The co-ops and the munis in particular, who are obviously extremely member and customer oriented and community oriented, are really cleaning up their power grids. Um, I, one, one that I love to call out is um, Holy Cross Energy up in uh, Colorado, led by um, by a good friend of mine and, and former NREL leader, Brian Hannigan, who, who has really, I think, just set a new level of ambition for what utilities, co-ops, and munis can do. And in a part of the world where you've got a lot of cheap gas, right? And they've, they've set these incredible, incredible uh, milestones and standards for decarbonizing their, their grid up there. So we are seeing a range of different types of uh, models now where it's not just the PPA and the VPPA anymore.
0: Okay, in the last episode, I had I, I talked to Steve McComb from Incubex, and we talked about renewable energy certificates or credits. What are your thoughts on on how RECs fit into this space, and whether those are becoming more popular, or less popular? What kind of solution are they providing?
1: Well, uh, RECs have been a really important instrument for for measuring procurement of renewable energy in our first couple of decades. Um, I I do think that we are now uh, we are now facing. The limitations of RECs as an instrument. They really are not designed to measure the carbon impact of a project. And as we see customers shifting from just procuring new renewables, which is what a REC is designed to measure, and, and now we see customers saying, I want to ensure decarbonization impact of my project. Um, we really need to look at the attribute system and the certification system very differently through that lens. So if I'm a customer who says, hey, what I'd like to do is let's let's go to West Texas where we've got a lot of wind and, and use that otherwise curtailed wind to make green hydrogen. And then I want to procure that green hydrogen for either electricity or my vehicles. Uh, We need an attribute system that incentivizes a company to do that because that may be the most carbon-optimized project. You may have a company up in the Pacific Northwest who says, hey, there's this 50-year-old hydropower plant that's aging and underutilized and not efficient and potentially not not salmon-friendly. I'd like to do a power purchase agreement with my utility to revitalize this hydropower plant to potentially eliminate the need for a gas peaker plant. Again, today, the REC system is not designed. You can't get a REC for that project, but that might be the carbon-optimized project to do. Likewise, with long-duration storage in California, maybe instead of another additional new solar project, um, what what would be the carbon-optimized project would be to be the offtaker for storage. So we need to design a 21st century attribute system that really incentivizes the customer community and rewards the customer community for carbon-optimized projects. Uh, and, and we actually have a sister organization called the Reba Institute. It's a 501c3 sort of think and do tank. And we're actually launching a project now called Next Generation Carbon Free Energy that really is going to start to dive into some of this with our, with our key partners in the NGO community to say, what is the attribute system we need for a truly decarbonized power grid? How can we widen the aperture, open the goalposts so that more carbon free projects can actually uh, be rewarded in this, in this community? So that's what I would say about RECs. Are companies still buying them? Absolutely. Um, Do companies still still swap them to make sure that they can get credit in their, you know, in their uh, renewable energy reports and in the EPA Green Power Partner Program and in their RE100 goal accounting? Yes, absolutely. And we are definitely at that moment in time where we're bumping up against the limitations of what that attribute was designed to measure and incentivize.
0: Okay. I appreciate that. It sounds like there's definitely room for, uh, updates or I guess, you know, Rex to evolve or even just a brand new product to come out. So, Hey, I know we're coming up on time. Uh, I could ask you more and more questions and just go in the weeds on this stuff, but I do want to step back for a second and, um, ask you about you and kind of your background and, and your leadership. You know, you've talked about how you know, you spend time at the air force and, and Walmart and, you know, CEO of a energy storage as a service, energy storage as a service startup. Gosh, that's a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> definitely about it. <laughs> But now you're sitting atop an organization that that's full of, you know, some of the biggest corporate names out there. All these companies and all these individuals are, 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 you know, hugely successful. And now you've got to got to wrangle all them together. So we have a lot of listeners who come from the trade association background. So what kind of advice would you have for them? Or what kind of leadership tips do you deploy at Reba to, to make sure everyone's kind of, you know, rowing the boat in the same direction?
1: yeah well as the ceo of a trade association for only two years I, I i could probably use some of some advice from some of your listeners as opposed to me giving advice to them um yeah i've, I've been very very lucky to have a, a, a fun and, and interesting career so far and and hopefully just so far i hope i've got a little bit more time left um but uh you know a, a couple of things that i've always brought brought to to um, each of my roles is find those connections, whether you're a trade association that has really disparate membership with different perspectives and and desires. In trade associations, I think it's particularly easy to have a race to the bottom to find consensus. we're not always going to find consensus. And, you know, here at REBA, there are, there are times when we say, okay, there's not consensus, but this is what our mission determines that we need to do. Uh, so, but finding the connections, bringing people to the table, this is such a small but important tip in my view. Um, having conversations with multiple people in the room, particularly in the membership space is really important because the members have to hear from one another. Otherwise, you get on a phone call with one member who says, don't do it. You get on a phone call with another member who says, do it. And you're just the go-between. But when you get them on the phone together, then everyone hears everyone else's perspectives, but we're all focused on our mission, which is a zero carbon energy system. So I think that the importance of bringing people together for those conversations can't can't be overstated. Uh, these are problems for which there are no clear-cut solutions. We're trying to solve things that have not been solved before. So uh, we got to come up with the right solutions that we think are going to work knowing that there is no perfect solution.
0: All right, Miranda. Well, this has been a great conversation. I could go on for hours, but we got to go. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you, Sean. I look forward to the day when we can all get back together in person. But in the meantime, this is a really fun way to stay connected.
0: All right, everybody. Now it's time for the pod brief segment of the show. What I really want to talk about is sort of an extension of what Miranda and I just discussed. It's exciting to hear about all the innovative ways REBA members are looking to procure renewable energy. But I want to shine a spotlight on what some of those very same firms are doing that may also prove to have a major impact on decarbonizing our economy. Rather than just adding more and more renewable energy sources, these firms are always trying to optimize and in some case reduce their energy use. For example, Google has developed algorithms that determine the best time the company should perform its most energy-intensive tasks. And by best time, I mean the times at which intermittent energy sources like solar and wind are most abundant. That's pretty cool. And it also might lead to changes in the way we all operate our households. You see, I don't know about you, But I was raised to not run the dryer in the laundry room during hot parts of the day because that's when there's already peak energy demand. What if Google's algorithm flips that notion on its head and one day leads to a smart home solution that sends a message to someone in real time that perhaps they should run the dryer at a certain time, even if it's hot outside, because that's when nearby solar farms or the solar panels they might have on their very own roof are generating peak energy. Another example is Microsoft. Microsoft is developing underwater data centers. Yeah, you heard me right. Underwater data centers. These data centers are placed in capsules that look like submarines and dropped to the bottom of rivers, lakes, and maybe even one day the open ocean. These data centers are more energy efficient because the water keeps them relatively cool. They're also more efficient because there aren't any humans fidgeting with the equipment and breaking things, but that's another story. My point is that these underwater data centers might one day be placed in bodies of water near large cities where there is serious demand for their services. Placing them closer to population centers cuts the distance the data has to travel, which reduces latency. Will we one day live in a world where these underwater data centers are co-located with offshore wind turbines and then sharing the transmission routes back to shore? I like to think so. And if we do, I'm pretty sure the big companies leading the way on renewable energy, companies like the members of REBA, will be the ones we have to thank. That's it for today's show. Stay tuned for our next episode, where I'll be talking to Greg Hopkins from RMI about how to grow the green mortgage market. Once again, I'd like to thank the sponsor of today's episode, N4. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues and be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company.